0: The following audio is via a Skype call. Boy, I tell you, I'm through banging my head against the wall. I'm going to start doing what's right for me.
1: TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson
0: Mitchell, you're on the air.
1: Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour this Friday and we have bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. So what could possibly go wrong? Benny, how are you today, sir? I'm
0: doing so good. I missed you so much. <laughs> <laughs> if only I could
1: teleport. Someday. It would be wonderful. No, yes, I, don't I miss Seattle fine. all the time. Do you know, and Suzanne watches me bemused yeah, right. as I sit there and watch reruns of Frasier about every night. We do this, certainly during the week. We started. Right. It gets, you in, the mood, says,
0: it gets you in the mood for the next day's show. Exactly,
1: oh, yeah, and, yeah. and I, I enjoy it when he says Frazier has left the building or just <laughs> good night. But when he says good night, Seattle, we love you. I always wave and I go, we love you too. <laughs> it's almost like you know when you're driving out in the like farmland or the country and all that, and everyone has the nerve or the the the, the I guess expression like when you drive by a cows and you go moo, and you're wondering yes. like, how did that cow get his driver's license? From the cow's perspective, you know, you're like, hey man. How'd you do that? How are you driving a car? That's right. Okay. And no matter how <laughs> bad their misspelling is, who taught them to write, eat more chicken? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We are here today to talk to Robert Kapeki. and that's something I haven't been able to say for a while. So we must make amends, Suzanne.
2: Yes, it's uh, it's been over a year since we've talked to him, and this is his fifth visit here today. I went and I counted them all up and uh, he is the author of a couple of books but let me give him his mad props. Robert Kopecki is a California-born writer, artist, and speaker who lived a variety of lives until becoming an award-winning illustrator, art director, and animation designer. In the course of his unusual path he survived three dramatically different near-death experiences that inspired years of study and meditation and led to the publication of his book, How to Survive Life and Death. He explores, writes, and teaches about the lessons he learned the hard way and blogs at the mindful word Gaia.com, Soul Lifetimes, and other places around the web. His website is robertkopecki.blogspot.com. The second book is How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying, and we are happy to have him back for the fifth time so that we can pepper him with questions and get his responses. Welcome to Manson Mitchell once again, Robert Kopecky.
0: Thank, thank you, Suzanne. It's nice to talk to you guys again. Hi, Gary. How are you doing?
1: Doing very well, Robert, and I'm here very curious to hear the story of how you made like Jed Clampett, and you went out to... California, <laughs> there you're. You're a New York guy, not originally, but you spent a lot of time you and your lovely wife in New York. And I wonder now that you're back in California, in Palm Springs specifically, does anyone around town say use dem doze any of those Brooklynese remarks? Uh,
0: yeah, there's there's quite a few quite a few transplants here. Actually, I think that uh, when people mention that I don't have, seem to have a New York accent, you know, I tell you know you want you want a New York accent, you know, that's not a problem. I can do that for you. you know? <laughs> we spent thirty years there, so it's um, it's nice to be back here in the land of driving.
1: I'm curious to know what prompted that decision. Was it entirely weather
0: related? No, you know, I'm from san diego california originally and my mother is uh, turning 88 this week wow and uh, you know we all live in this kind of circle of life right and so it was really time for me to come back around and join up that circle again so after 30 years in a big city like new york um the kind of the call of, of my beginnings it started to surface very strongly, and my wife and I were out here on the holidays every year, and we just decided that this would be a good place to land after the big city. So I'm back home, basically.
1: Thank you for explaining that. Sure. I, I wanted to know, there now, you've been on several times, but there may be people who have not heard you on our program or don't remember everything that you said. So I think to set the table for our conversation, Suzanne and I would be very appreciative if you would share with our listeners the essence or in capsule summary form, the experiences that you had, which experiences actually inspired a couple of wonderful books. How to survive life and death, a guide for happiness and this in this world and beyond, and also how to get to heaven without really dying. So, if you would like to talk to us about the things that happen to you and the wisdom you gain from those experiences, please share.
0: Sure. Without really dying is the important part of that. The second book's title, um, the near-death experience. I talk about as a phenomenon, uh, more than as a singular experience. That was um, incredible, which they all were incredible, because I had three of them. It didn't really they didn't really light on me. They didn't really they were moving my life, but I didn't realize they were moving my life. But it didn't really crystallize in me the lessons until I took up a meditation practice about fifteen years ago or so now. But basically what happened was that I was in a I was in a single car accident where I experienced it, I had an out-of-body experience. I found myself instantly above the scene of the crash and was able to look over into people's yards over their hedges and stuff. And when I went back, those views were confirmed from ground level. So I had this kind of confirmation. But I, I also witnessed the, that reality, uh, the sort of extra-dimensional reality, that <clears throat> we're spiritual beings riding around in physical vehicles, you know. Uh, that um, out-of-body experience led to this, led me to this kind of um, pastoral place where I had a kind of an interview that's that's kind of indistinct in my memory. And and something that I don't do is I don't elaborate a great deal on all the details of my memories because they all happened a long time ago, and I know that memories are not super reliable. The experiences that I had as they were were plenty, uh, but. I learned from that what I call the gift of perspective, of spiritual perspective. Um, some years, about seven or eight years later, I had an experience uh, that was really due to a, a lifestyle problems I was having. I was living in the big city and mostly a nocturnal lifestyle, and I, I was burning the candle at both ends, and it burned me one night. I had a, uh, I just kind of fell out from uh, substance abuse and issues of that nature. I found myself laying on the floor of, an, uh, of my apartment, and a white cloud filled up the room. And I, I basically left my body again, although not in the same, not with the same kind of, of perspective, but I, uh, I experienced having my, scenes from my life shown to me. So uh, it, there was, uh, there was this kind of life review that took place where I. I kind of witnessed or re-participated in a way in these uh, these very uh, seminal moments in my life that weren't the greatest hits. They weren't the golden moments. They were moments that I hadn't been adequately present or that I had not been paying close enough attention. And that experience I call gave me the uh, the, the gift of presence or this realization that we're living in this eternal moment. This is when we make things happen. The third one then was uh, years later, and I I, uh, had a run-in with a group of skinheads, we used to call them, these uh, uh, tough sort of neo-Nazi kind of guys in a small town in Arizona. And uh, I thought it was over, but they drove up behind me uh, later and hit me in the back of the head with like a crowbar or a tire iron or something, and then got out of their van and stomped and kicked me for a long time. So that was my least favorite way to go if one has to have such a thing in that and uh, that one i experienced what's called being forced back to life so i was in this kind of <clears throat> this kind of um, heavenly subterranean place it wasn't quite as transcendent or illuminative as my other two experiences um, but i was told that i hadn't done things right and that i needed to go back and complete my mission so to speak and i was forced back uh, into this life against my will, and popped out into myself, laying on my back in the street in this small town in Arizona with an emergency medical person saying, he's back. And uh, that I call the gift of purpose, uh, this realization that we are all here on a kind of specific personal mission that only we can fulfill, Kind of like, kind of like joining back to that circle that brought me back out west. So those are the
2: three experiences that I had. Well, thank you, Robert. I, I appreciate you doing that, and you, you do that so beautifully. I mean, I could follow everything that you were saying. And Gary and I were reviewing our notes and that we took from the first, uh, the two books that you wrote, to think about, you know, what we wanted to talk about today. And it just seems like there were so many places for us to jump off of. And one that you just mentioned now, having to do with uh, having three near-death experiences, but not actually dying in the sense that you couldn't get back. So you got back three times. And in the third time, this sense of having purpose, I think that a lot of people are living their life not really knowing what their purpose is. And after your third near-death experience, did you did you then, were you clear about your purpose or were you just clear that you needed to be back here to do some work?
0: Um, I wasn't quite clear about it immediately. It still took me a few more years. I had to have this kind of, uh, I had to go through this kind of uh, dark night of the soul. And I was present for 9-11, too, which sort of activated in me a spirituality that I had not recognized in myself before. And, and that led me to get this little house on the Upper Delaware River and to go literally sit on a rock by the river for, for years uh, meditating and, and led me to becoming interested in all of the kind of scripture and philosophy and quantum physics and things that I began studying out of the blue uh, then. But uh, it did... As these things crystallized in me over a, a few years of that activity, the, the realization of purpose, the lesson of that third near-death experience was um, it came clearer to me because I had always imagined my life as the being this kind of James Bond movie or something you know with myself as the star as, as James Bond kind of a, a big budget uh, sort of blockbuster or something. and of course, you know, that's not true. Uh, my life is really more like a a low budget indie with a handheld camera kind of and, and me as the anti hero lots of times. And and so my imagination had always my ego had always led me to believe that I was going to be some kind of movie star in some way and that's that, you know, that's where I was heading. And I you know, I've had moments of of, of great success commercially and in the media and stuff like that. Uh, But none of it really mattered very much because I came to recognize that my actual purpose was to be my authentic self and was to show up for the life that I had been woven into, the kind of uh, karma that I came into the world carrying. Uh, You know, we all have our DNA and then we have our life experiences and the um, the way we learn our life lessons and our family members, uh, for example, the people that we meet in our life. And so there's this kind of elaborate weaving that's done that that is plenty miraculous without being at the level of a Hollywood blockbuster, you know. Lots of us are are looking, staring right at what our purpose is and and asking ourselves what our purpose is at the same time. (laughs) The fact is, what the people in your life want you to do, what you do well, what you believe in, uh, the love that you have to answer in your life, and what people in your life are are asking you to do for them, what you feel your responsibilities are to that, to answering that circle of love. That's where your purpose is. It's right in front of you lots of times, and you can energize it in a different way that makes it certainly seem like a a much more popular movie than what a lot of us walk
2: around uh, succumbing to sometimes. You know, you perfectly, excuse me, you perfectly answered the next question that I was um, wanting to posit to you, Robert, and that is that I think our egos definitely get in the way of being able to figure out our purpose, but then there's also this feeling of being on a gerbil wheel of needing to survive, have a place to live, have food, have money, uh, and our egos are saying, plus, you know, you want to be good at what you do. You want to be recognized and acknowledged. And so there is the, this sense of, you know, how do you get away to meditate? How do you get away to look at your life and, and take a different perspective when our everyday lives are just so darn busy? And, and the fact that, that you did that, not everybody is going to have that opportunity or make that opportunity. And yet, how can you, when you are so immersed in the day-to-day living? I, I think people would really like to know how to do that because um, I think that we would embrace our purposes a little bit more, but you're saying, the purpose isn't as complicated as you might think if you, if you give it a, a little bit of a meditation.
0: No, lots of times it's right there in front of you. It's funny because I'm, I'm working on my third book right now. The working title is Transcend the Turmoil, Using <laughs> Spiritual Technology to Redefine Success. And that's really the lesson of the three near-death experiences for me is that we have a misperception problem. You know, what you're describing is the human condition we're human beings, and so we have to experience life this way. You know, it's, it's not easy. There are all these challenges uh, that, that we face every day and just uh, trying to keep the whole thing together and moving on the right track. But our misperception problem is that we aren't always one with God, so to speak. That, you know, if we consider ourselves as these effervescent, diaphanous energy beings, That are occupying this flesh-and-bone vehicle. Uh, That's the gift of perspective, right? And as always living in this eternal moment, right, in this space that we're in, when we can make changes, when we can do one thing at a time and keep moving and recognize the sacred kind of in everything, right, in this moment. That's that's the uh, gift of presence. And then, realize that we fit into this in a very specific way where we come from the doors that are opening up for us the the uh, obstacles to love in our way that we can uh, start to take apart then we can start to perceive ourselves truly as spiritual beings uh... that are always channeling this kind of divine consciousness through the material filter of myself <laughs> you know and when we witness each other, we can see this struggle going on for this beautiful divine consciousness to express itself through whatever the person in front of you has gone through in their life. And in the same way that I have all of these challenges to meet, uh, too, I can basically release myself to that energy that makes the roses bloom, So, to kind of simplify it and just follow my life in a way that that doesn't require so much effort. There's a a great Native American uh, metaphor. If you get tired of rowing upstream, turn around, Uh, because that's what life is really like in many ways. If we recognize our spirituality, if we perceive ourselves primarily as spiritual beings dealing in a material world, then we can just go with the flow. And it, it is carrying us in the direction we need to go, and that makes life a lot easier.
1: I wanted to quote from you, if I might, Robert, because it opens up or widens the scope of this interview that we're doing here today. And thank you for it. you. You speak so eloquently. I I just think it's wonderful to have the perspective that you're all too willing to share. You were asked in your experiences as part of the near-death community, and yes, that's a thing, near-death community, what have you concluded from hearing lots of different stories and from studying their differences? Your answer was so intriguing. That NDEs, you replied, are all specifically customized to their experiencer. NDEs are culturally exclusive. Christians may see angels or meet Jesus. Buddhists meet Yama. Hindus meet Yamaraja or have Chitra Gupta read the Akashic Record, so we must carry some pattern recognition into or back from the afterlife. I love that quote of yours because I feel like when we cross over, and I'm convinced that there is an afterlife, and I'm persuaded that reincarnation is a reality, that this is a matter of soul ecology. When we cross over, I feel like, we know and we are known. That's how I interpret the phrase you use. pattern recognition. When you cross that threshold into the next life, the afterlife, it would be pretty darn difficult, if not impossible, for you to pretend to be someone that you are not because your essence is known to the universe.
0: Yeah, that, that's very well put, Gary. I, that's, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, in a way. The... Um... The the really interesting thing about having survived three near-death experiences is is that if no one of them is the same, and then uh, as becoming part of the community, one has an opportunity to hear all these other people's experiences, and none of them are quite the same, too, uh, then how come we're not all going to the same Elysian field and meeting our grandparents, you know? Uh, Why aren't we all meeting Jesus uh, at the same time and the same place and like that? What is clear then, is part of this kind of misperception problem that we have, is that uh, this is an extra-dimensional life already. Being a human being is extra-dimensional in ways that we don't typically recognize. So when we're freed of these physical constraints, that is, quote-unquote, die, or come close to dying, it happened in my case, uh, we are freed into this field of, of divine potential, you might call it, where all we're carrying with us, because I didn't remember having a body in any of these experiences. I remember being myself and being able to see, witness what I was witnessing, but I don't remember having arms and hands and feet and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we are carrying with this package of what amounts to kind of karmic data, you might say, Um uh, this is that spiritual package that was put into my body when I was a baby and born into this world, and I grow up learning more and finding ways to uh, sort of find my authentic self, complete myself, show up for this life. And then when I had these experiences happen, I kind of popped out into this world of of divine potential, this expansive, illuminative matrix of loving intelligence, right where. What I'm bringing to it is then reflected back to me. And this is the nature, I think, of, of uh, near-death experience and the way, that, uh, the way that it's spoken about by people from all different cultures. Each person has this specific story that matches their life, what they are bringing into the afterlife, so to speak. And then we all have just a human language to express what we experienced when we came back. So there is this kind of pattern recognition, uh, is the way that I put it, for each person's life specifically so that the near-death experience is custom-made for each person in much the same way, if you think about it,
2: as this life
0: is custom-made. I am carrying my package of karmic data with me in everything I do, and it is being reflected back to me in this world, dependent upon my actions, on the way that I'm perceiving the circumstances, my willingness to remove the obstacles to love, for example, from my life. And so, the near-death experience, to me, having been a three-time experiencer, is really a description of this kind of spiritual technology that's underlying this whole thing. You know, there is something going on here that the the simple focus of human life does not entirely describe and that's why we have mythology and religion you know and et cetera, et cetera is to help us describe uh, this larger thing that we're a part of that we can only kind of get a glimpse of as human beings but there are certain things about it that we can rely on this spiritual technology works a very particular way while uh while near-death experiences are all different, the things that they have in common is that experiencers all experience pure love. They experience some kind of radiant illumination. They have an experience of transcendent unity. There's usually some kind of karmic instruction involved. And then there's this kind of renewal that starts with just coming back to life. And so those aspects of the near-death experience are consistent Throughout all of them, across every culture, across every experience. And those are things that we can actually bring into this life to help us. Uh, to, this is how to get to heaven without really dying. That's the second book.
2: When you talk about things being reflected back to us, uh, you know, what we're putting out is what we're getting back, then it makes perfect sense to me that creating a heavenly experience on earth is a, a, a doable thing. And in another, something that I had read, another question that you had answered, you said heaven has everything to do with how you live your life instead of who you are or what it is that you have. It's how you live your life. And, and so you from that perspective, you can understand where someone can have a feeling of being in a heavenly place. I know for myself, I experience that most when I'm out in nature. If Gary and I are, are on a hike, if we're seeing a national park, if we're uh, you know either at the beach or at the mountains, then there is this sense of oneness with everything. And it comes through nature. But it it seems as though it doesn't it, it isn't exclusive to that particular venue. There is a way somehow to create an experience of being in heaven now instead of waiting till after we die to experience that.
0: Yeah, avoid that. Uh, take my advice. Don't follow my example. That's, <laughs> the thing about near death experiences is that you don't want to do it. You don't have to do it. We've all experienced a little piece of heaven, and it's not always in the same place. Uh, so that demonstrates to us that heaven is a state of being, right? It's a state of our sort of spiritual oneness uh, rather than anything material. And in near-death experiences, the sort of material aspects of them are all different for everybody based on what we're bringing to it. So we can uh, do things in this life that, that will create uh, this little piece of heaven for us, uh, whether, like you say, it's being out in nature where the, the veil to the miraculous is much thinner, so to speak. The, the, the membrane to the divine is quite thin when we're out in nature, and it's very easy for us to feel this transcendent unity and uh, to sense the, the beautiful, radiant illumination of things, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that happens for us, too, when we're playing with little kids or when we have a an animal beautiful animal in our lap you know there are these moments these transcendent moments that are heavenly in nature and so you know what are those things I, i you know i've i mentioned before talking to you guys i always like to suggest to people that they go out today and they be as authentically kind to everyone as they possibly can be gossiping or being sarcastic. Just go out and open your heart and be as authentically kind to everybody you meet in every situation, and watch how that will transform your life. Watch how that will bring this major aspect of heaven into your material life right now. And so heaven is a state of being. It's not a specific place. That was the lessons I learned.
1: At that point, I figured... I've heard enough for one half hour and I want more, but first we must take a break. Okay. So Robert Kopecky joins us for the entire hour. He is the author of two books, working on a third, but for now, the ones we know of, How to Survive Life and Death, A Guide for Happiness in This World and Beyond by Someone Who Died Three Times. And Robert Kopecky has written, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying, Wisdom from a Near-Death Survivor. We'll hear more from Robert. We have questions, he has answers, and we're so grateful that you tuned in to Manson Mitchell of a Friday. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll be right back at the home of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.
0: It was a goal that I wanted to achieve from the very beginning. I'm a 40-year-old man that walked in there to get his high school diploma. I wasn't sure if I could do it. It was very hard for me, but the teachers, the counselors, they help you. One of the teachers was uh, Miss Araceli. Miss Araceli, she gave me direction. Every single time I had a question, she'll put down whatever she's doing and she'll come over and she'll sit there with you until you get it. At age 47, with the help of his teacher, Marco finished his high school diploma. of getting your high school diploma is walking through those doors. The other 50% is doing the work. Getting your high school diploma, it is a life-changing experience, it really is. It catapults you to where you want to go. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. That's finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council.
2: On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Robert Kopecky, who talks about a guide for happiness right now in this lifetime and in the many incarnations to come.
1: On Saturday, Kim Manor regales us with the ups and downs of traveling around the U.S. the last two years in an RV and how quantum thinking got her there.
2: Bringing you fascinating talks since 2007.
1: We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk, 1150.
2: Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Robert Kopecky. He is the author of a couple of books that Gary and I have read cover to cover. The first one is How to Survive Life and Death, A Guide for Happiness in This World and Beyond by Someone Who Died Three Times. And the second book is How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying, Wisdom from a Near-Death Experiencer. The author is Robert Kopecky. Robert, if people would like to get your books, get in touch with you, I don't know about uh, websites, social media, anything that you would like to tell our listeners, now's the time to do that.
0: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, www.robertkopecky.com is my website, and then my real working website is my blog, where I am all the time. That's robertkopecky.blogspot.com, and that has a contact on it. I'm also on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I have an author page on Facebook where I make announcements uh, for uh, where I'm appearing and stuff like that. For example, next weekend, I'll be at the International Association for Near Death Studies Conference in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Uh, So uh, you can find out uh, about that kind of stuff by going to any of those places. And and the, the books are available in all those
2: places excellent yeah thank you for that
1: when we talk about people crossing over having these near-death experiences i wanted to ask you robert if you've ever spoken at least at any length with someone who maintains that it isn't all bread and roses over there and you cross over and there's uncle pete and he's got a big hug for you and you meet your friends and relatives and your dog's there too that they actually say i mean these are accounts are on record of people who say it was a horrible experience. I actually met demonic figures with their claws and I smelled sulfur and I felt like I was really on the precipice of hell and I was terrified. And then they come back and they live what might be called uh, well, uh, their eyes are open to maybe a more fundamentalist Christian type of existence. Maybe they, they become a bit more Puritan in their sensibilities. But at any rate, they claim that there is a hell, and they saw it up close and personal when they had a near-death experience.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's the source of what should be this kind of absolute respect and honoring for each or each survivor's experience. Uh, but to me, it also makes it very clear that the experience itself, this kind of extra-dimensional uh, scenario that unfolds for people when they uh, kind of exit this life for momentarily or however long, is custom-made. That you are carrying into this field of potential something that's going to instantaneously inform uh, that uh, that. Matrix, to use a a popular term. And then what you need to experience is going to come back to you as that afterlife uh, experience. So whoever, uh, there's a fellow named Howard Storm, for example, who uh, famously tells of a horrible, horribly hellish experience. And I've heard of numerous uh, hellish experiences. Um, It has to do directly with What they brought into it, I know from my experience that each of my three different experiences were really formed by where I was in my life. They were uh, directly relative to where, what my karma was at that time, right? And so they uh, they've ended up informing my life in such a way that I can look at myself with this kind of compassionate detachment in the you know this world i'm and i'm involved i'm passionate about it i care about it but i'm also uh, i can also kind of take a step back from it you know it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle after you've had that experience i can be right here and now in the present and i can understand that i'm here for this particular reason those are realizations that most people do not carry into uh, their near-death experiences. You know, it hits you blindside. And what, happens, what happened to me in those experiences was the spontaneous kind of expression of where I was. And so that's why, uh, to me, it really means that it's the state of being that's the important aspect, what we are carrying with us, what we're projecting out into our world. And
2: one of the things that uh, is early on in your book, you say you become a witness to the way your desires, your fears, your thoughts can be defining your life in such a limiting way. You realize a new freedom based on being loved, supported and connected to the energy of liberated consciousness. All it takes is a little imagination and a little action. And it brings to mind the idea that if things are being reflected back to us and we have a, a near-death experience which is extremely negative, that that is a reflection of our thinking, that we are creating our life both here in this reality and in the spiritual world so that what shows up may not be necessarily what's expected but it may definitely be part of how we are living our life here and now that it won't necessarily be dramatically different from our normal day-to-day thinking is that making sense the way i'm saying it robert
0: Yeah, it is, and the fact is that my near-death experiences were amazing and transcendent and otherworldly and all of those things that you hear experiencers talk about, but they also were kind of uh, normal in a way. You know, they were where I was there, and so it was not that different from this life right here. The the question is, um, don't they realize who I think I am? You know, I, I was walking around in my life uh, projecting this self-importance, you know. So there, there's this definition by ego, by the human condition, the things I have, the expectations that I have, the, the, uh, the things that I expect other people to believe about me, that I'm, I'm telling myself are who I am in this world and stuff. I can be walking around thinking, I'm very important. And that's what I'm putting out. And the people around me can be thinking, well, this guy is putting out that he's a jerk, <laughs> you know, that he's a yes. important jerk. Right. And so we are through this human experience where we're, we're uh, basically defining and creating karma uh, so that when I got knocked out of this world, it was all there right in front of me. This is, you know, this is what I'm carrying with me. So
2: right. death, is, yeah.
0: death is necessary for us to be to kind of reboot in this way, and what it means into the you know afterlife to speak of is a death of the ego, a death of this sense of the human, of human importance, and this, what Joseph Campbell used to call the metaphysical urge to transcend the delusion of separateness, you know this idea that I'm an individual and that's it. That
2: doesn't hold up on the other side. There is, there is some point in the book, and I don't have it in front of me, but there is a point where you say that this is a very difficult thing to do because it's a little bit like playing whack-a-mole. As soon as you think you have somehow either mastered or overcome a particular aspect of your ego, another one seems to just pop up as part of the human condition. And so we, we, we never really get to to that place of, of having completely defeated our ego because I think that's part of the default of being human. Right. Otherwise, why would we be here? You know, we yeah. don't need to be here. We can just be angels in another realm. But it's like we come here to be human and to have all of our talents and to have all of the things that we're, also wanting to work on or overcome and and isn't that like closely aligned with our purpose kind of to get over ourselves
0: yeah yeah if if um if we're eternal beings then why do we have to die even why aren't we just beautiful eternal beings all the time well we have to die because we need to experience that absolute humility that, that guides us to our authentic selves and our authentic connection with everything Else, you know, one of the problems with um, defeating ego as a spiritual practitioner is that, that now I'm uh, I'm too spiritual for that. You know, <laughs> I'm more spiritual than that person or that person. Well, their problem is they're not as spiritual as I am. And now you're spiritually egomaniac, a spiritual egomaniac, right? <laughs> you know, right. My wife, my wife says, um, "Is this the spiritual Robert?" Uh, right now.
2: <laughs> there you go. You
0: know, if I'll that's say right. something that's not really in keeping uh, with, with pure spirituality, is this a spiritual, Robert? Would you like everybody to see this version of Robert right now? And uh, and so that's just the nature of being human, right, is that we have this arising all the time, this need to kind of define ourselves in some self-enhancing way. or uh, Even when it comes to spirituality, uh, that can be an ongoing problem. That the only thing that resolves it really is awareness and humility,
1: and also a recognition that perfection is not a human attribute until our final dying day. Some of us make a habit of this, Robert. Not me. I haven't experienced an NDE, but for those of you who do, for those of you who are into it, <laughs> you you know when you come back that until our final dying day when we cross over for the last time and let go of these bodies, we're going to be fallible creatures. It just goes with the territory until if it ever happens, evolution takes us to a place where we don't make mistakes. I sure don't foresee anything like that, but I do believe that we have to be a bit tender with ourselves, certainly more understanding empathetic with others. Yes but also understanding, because when I don't think we have any tougher critic in this life than ourselves. I don't know about you, but I tend to beat myself up over my mistakes, and then I have to decide to back off and let myself experience my humanness, make course corrections as necessary, and give myself unconditional acceptance.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, and uh, in, the, in the second book, I talk about um, what you think heaven is. What do you? What's in your mind when you think of heaven? And uh, it's, it's a place I write. To, I write about each of these subjects uh, in its own chapter: kindness, honesty, humility, forgiveness, compassion, and service. Those are kind of the the action-based um, modifiers of life that create heaven. You know that if, that's, if you're going to go to heaven, everybody's going to be kind, honest, humble, forgiving, compassionate, and any angel would drop his harp to help you uh, unconditionally. You know, <laughs> Service is <laughs> a big part, of it. and those are things we can bring into our lives: being kind to others and kind to ourselves, like you're talking about, being honest to people so that they can count on us, and so that I'm not lying to myself about something important. Being humble so that we're we're all on the same level. Nobody thinks I'm trying to be better than them at any time. That you know energizes life in a, in a specific way. Being forgiving, uh, just unconditionally, immediately forgiving people. The guy who cuts you off in traffic or something. You know he's probably in a hurry. Maybe his mom's in the hospital. You know we we forgive like that, and then recognize that that's doing something for us. It. I am forgiving myself for those little faux pas that I do, too, like, as, you're, as you're talking And self-compassion, compassion towards others. Yes. And, and uh, taking action, being of service to people, you know, um, giving back uh, constantly for, for what you're getting. And, and then when you're giving, you realize that you're getting, you know, that if you do service for somebody unconditionally, maybe without them even knowing about it, the rewards are huge on a personal Mm -hmm. level. You know, what you get out of it is just miraculous, really.
1: I have heard, I hear it in what you say, Robert, and I've heard it from others, a couple of whom have had the experience, others are citing other references, but it seems that, most, I'm not saying all, but most people who have a near-death experience come back with an enhanced feeling of compassion, seeing it from the other guy's point of view and a willingness to be more of service to humanity. I hear about that regularly.
0: That's what a good butt-kicking will give you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like there's no, there's no shame in that game and there's no, um, there's no pretending. Uh, and it, you're stripped down to your authentic self. And then when uh, you have the, the miracle takes place of, of one's return back here, it's, it's a totally reconditioned by that absolute humility. That's, that's the nature, the interesting nature of death, of the death experience. Uh, we all die in different ways, right, stages of our life, Uh, to uh, definitions of our career, for example, you lose an important job, to uh, relationships you have with somebody who may die uh, physically or, you know, they may leave your life and suddenly, you know, you have to deal with this level of absolute humility where you're basically kind of starting over. That's what, um, that's what happened to me finally when I had this experience of sort of the dark night of the soul, this transformative kind of experience where, where the near-death stuff kind of crystallized in me. I came to realize um, that, that everything that I thought was important externally wasn't particularly important, that the important things are the things that don't change, the recognition of the obstacles that I had built to love to experiencing uh, life as a spiritual being rather than as a material one.
2: Well, I like that. I like that, Robert. Um, I'm trying to figure out where, where else we want to go because we've just got about six minutes left or so and too many one. questions. Let
1: me toss this out to you, Robert. Go ahead. Have you talked to people who because they have passed on we're not talking about ndes anymore this is something more mediumistic though i realize you're not speaking as a psychic medium and i'm not asking the question as one either but this phenomenon of ghosts have you taken time to consider that there are people who feel earthbound or feel incomplete in some way and so even after they have crossed left their bodies i mean permanently and they are in a kind of netherworld do you see that as real this concept that they could come back and make visitations because of a message they want to communicate or simply because they like hanging around
0: um y- yes i do see it is real because i do see this life as an extra-dimensional life uh, already you know there's modern science doesn't want to accept that or it leads us to these attitudes of skepticism and the like. Uh, however, most of the technology that we have works as a result of quantum physics being such a reliable uh, set of theories. Um, and that basically is extra dimensional. You know, things are, are happening uh, non locally, things are happening on one side of the world and the other. And we, we know we have this global consciousness uh, studies out of Princeton that. Demonstrate that things are being experienced on both sides of the world at the same time, and that so it is a, an extra dimensional life that we're in. In my first near death experience, I was knocked out of my body in a car accident, and I was at the level of the top of the telephone pole looking down at it. I, I remember trying to kind of levitate downwards to tell people that I was okay, that I was here. People started to gather around. They called an ambulance and stuff, and I witnessed all that. So I imagine I was a ghost. I was trying to talk to these people, but none of them could see me or hear me. And so these experiences of an extra-dimensional nature uh, are taking place in the format of human life all the time. But once you have the format of human life uh, broken, then the sky's the limit, literally, you know, Uh And so I I imagine that there are realms that are full of spirits that are still connected to material things that they've left. I'm I'm quite certain that that is reality. And it's time for us to uh, see the paranormal as normal in a lot of respects, and I think that's a trend that you can't avoid. as, As time goes on, we accept things that were formerly unacceptable all the time.
2: You know, you see it on cable television, Robert, when you have the ancient aliens, the Bigfoot, the UFO experiences, ghost whisperer, when it becomes more common in our culture, then I I think you see that trend. And then there are other cultures worldwide who are more accepting of it so that when their influence becomes more westernized, then you have that as well. We've talked to a number of near-death experiencers who have said that they didn't want to come back when they experienced life in the spirit realm, in the other dimension. Since this happened to you three times, in any or all of those, did you say to yourself, I don't want to go back?
0: Yeah, that was really the nature of my third one, where I got that gift of purpose, I had had it with this place. I, you know, I was perfectly happy to stay where I was because there is this, uh, there's this feeling of no boundaries, of being liberated from the constraints of, and demands of human life. And so it's a natural thing that I think that almost every uh, near-death survivor will report is that it was very nice there where I was. And that's the idea behind uh, how to get to heaven without really dying is the effort to bring that uh, little piece of heaven into our experience in any moment.
2: I like that. Well, I can hardly wait till the third book.
1: Well, I can't (laughs) wait for the third book, but we want to be among the first to interview you about that. I can tell you that, Robert. But also, I just want to thank you for the insights, because I wouldn't care to have an NDE. I I don't need to approach An appreciation of the afterlife and of the greatness of the universe in that way and yet let me say that even if it happens uh, accidentally unwillingly or as a product of violence has happened to you there is a gift there is a gift in the middle of that and greater insight is that gift so in a way I wouldn't want to go through what you went through but there is a part of me that envies you the wisdom you were able to gain from these experiences
0: well, it's all available to us right now, Gary. You know that's something that, that uh, I I like to write about too. Is that if you look at uh, if you look at Shankara's Crest Jewel of Discrimination, or the Tao Te Ching, or the Dhammapada, or the Bhagavad Gita, or the Gospel of Thomas, the Upanishad, you know, there's all this stuff that is timeless and describes exactly what I'm talking about, and has for thousands of years. It means as much to us right in this moment as it ever has. So it's all right. Thank you, right. Robert. That's perfectly
1: said. Thank you said. so much. Let me get the names of the books out there: How to Survive Life and Death, How to Get to Heaven Without Really Dying. The author, Robert Kopecky, K-O-P-E-C-K-Y. Get these books; they will illuminate you. Thank you, Robert, so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Let's do it again.
0: Thank you, Suzanne and Gary. Take care.
2: All right. Next up is Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience. And right after that, Trip Talk with guest host Gary Mance.
1: Stay tuned to Alternative Talk AM 1150 and have a great day, everyone. The
2: preceding audio was via a Skype call.